So we're continuing in our uh, studies, uh, Bible talks on the book of 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament of the Bible. You'll find today's passage on page 1188 if you want to follow it in the uh, Bibles nearby. I encourage you to do that. might help uh, keep uh, keep you focused if you need to come back anytime and <laughs> see what the Bible says. Check out that I'm not making it up as I'm going along. And uh, lots of helpful, good reasons why it's good to have the Bible available to look at. So it's on page uh, 1188, it's 1 Thessalonians 4. As I say, we're continuing. In fact, next week is our last session in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're looking at this letter uh, from the Apostle Paul, one of the very first books of the New Testament to be written down. And it's to this community of relatively new believers in a city called Thessalonica. It was written to help them in their faith. It was written to confirm them in the sense that help just to underline that what had happened to them as they'd begun to know Jesus and follow him was real and genuine and true. Uh, and it also helps uh, them, uh, Paul writes, to encourage them to kind of carry on in that new life with Jesus that they began. Just a few months or probably no more than a year, but pro- probably much less than that, uh, that they started um, uh, from the time Paul wrote his letter from another place. And as we've seen, it gives us, I think, a helpful window on what Christianity looked like in those early days. Uh, not just for those 12 disciples that knew Jesus, but for people like us, um, like the Thessalonians. They'd never met Jesus before. They'd heard about him. They'd heard the message of him, and they'd encountered him. But it wasn't based on their memories, like the 12 disciples and we see back in the Acts. It was all new for them, just as it is for us. So if you'd like to kind of catch up on that, if you feel like it would be good to go over again or dwell a bit in what, what Christianity was like in those early days, well, you can pick, pick, up, pick it up online or there's CDs you can listen to. So these believers, they'd responded, hadn't they, to this message that Jesus was the King, the Messiah, the one who brings rescue. We read that in chapter uh, 1 where Paul talks about they were they had kind of turned to God from idols to trust the true and the living God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, the rescuer. And we read in the book of Acts that when uh, they it all started when the apostle Paul went to their synagogue, some of them were Jews originally, and began to tell them over three Sabbath days, he proved to them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus was the King, Jesus the one God had promised. And this Jesus intervened in their lives. And as they would have understood from those first three sessions in those Sabbath days in the synagogue, and this was the message that the early church kind of began with, Jesus is the one who's begun this new era that God started when he sent Jesus. The kingdom of God is now, it's here, it's begun. Remember Jesus in, in, in Luke chapter 4, when he went back to his hometown very early on in his ministry, he picked up uh, the scroll of Isaiah and he read it and he, he read the, the scroll about how the king was going to come and what he would do and he shut the scroll and he said to them, today this has happened. So that was the message. The king has arrived. The Messiah has come. God has started doing the thing that he promised all through the prophets in the Old Testament. Something new was happening. A new era had started. God's kingdom is here. And the Jewish people in that congregation would have understood that God had promised that in this new era, 
it would all end with God winding everything up. The day of the Lord was what they called it. This day that began with the arrival of the Messiah would end with everything being put right. And generally, they thought that it would soon be over. And why wouldn't they? That's where the disciples started. Remember in in Acts 1, just before Jesus went back to heaven, what did the disciples ask him? Do you remember they said to him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel now? That's what they expected. And he said, he didn't answer it directly. He said, that's not for you to know. I've got something else for you to do. Get on with doing it. You're going to tell the gospel all around the world. But that was the kind of expectation that this new Jewish promised day of the Messiah, which would end with everything being put right, started with Jesus, was going to, you know, going to happen there and then pretty soon. PDQ, as we sometimes say. Perhaps we shouldn't. Anyway, but it wasn't going to be quite as quick as all that. The new era had begun, but the last days were going to be quite long. The last days begin in Acts 2. You remember Peter says when he talks, uh, the Holy Spirit comes and he says, now this is the last days. Yeah, the day of the Lord has started. But the day of the Lord was going to be much longer. How it would end with God coming back in glory, but it was going to give the opportunity for all those other things that were promised in the Old Testament that the nations would hear. All of that had to be fulfilled. And that was what was going on. So go back to imagine you're a particularly Jewish background believer in Thessalonian church. Uh, you were thinking, well, we're in the last days. But it's been a few months now. It's nearly a year. I thought it was the day of the Lord. And oh no, what about, what about, uh, you know, uh, brother Bartholomew or sister Phoebe or whatever? They've died. Are they going to miss it? You know, I thought that this was the day of the Lord. What's, what's happened to them? Where are they? Are they part of the deal? You can imagine you having that kind of thought, can't you? Some people have died. Have they missed the kingdom? Their expectations were going to be changed. And it was a worry. How are they going to deal with it? And that's what this section of the letter is all about. If you look at verse 13 there in chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. It's all about hope. Paul is saying, this new life you've got in Jesus, this kingdom that you're part of, it's going to be a long distance thing. And you're going to have hope. Now, I don't know whether we can identify with this. Perhaps we do. I'll share a story. You know, when I was a teenager, I really got committed to Jesus when I was a teenager. I suppose I was pretty pretty keen, or I thought I was. <laughs> uh, but maybe it was me, but I don't think it was just me. But I really thought that, you know, it would all be over quite soon. I thought Jesus was going to be coming back really quick. So I really, I remember even when I was at school, I, I remember thinking, well, I'll choose a university course, but I don't think I need to bother too much about a career because I think Jesus will probably be back before I finish university. I really, I thought that. I don't know. Excuse me, that's just me. Maybe you've had those kind of thoughts as well. Losing people who die, well, 
That wasn't in my playbook. Well, old people died, obviously, and older people who became sick died. But, but people like me, you know, people who were like my age and stage and stuff, and it, actually it was a bit of a shock, I think, when I got to university and someone was killed in a bike crash and other things happened, you know. I wonder whether hope can fade a bit. Sometimes in the early days of our Christian life, we're full of hope and expectation. And with the early glow, as it were, of knowing Jesus, sometimes, well, it can fade. I don't know. Perhaps if that's not your problem, you probably just think I grew up in a barking mad sector. I didn't. It was a regular church. But we, but we, we, we had this sense that this was exciting. Jesus was real. That's what he promised. So Paul's going to feed our hope in this passage in two ways. He says, you're not to have, you're not to grieve when people die. That's the phrase he uses throughout here for sleep in death. It's a, a kind of a, um, you know, a, a phrase that you use, a, a, like a euphemism for death. Doesn't mean that Christians who die are un- unconscious or asleep. That's another whole area. But it's just a phrase that is used for Christians who have died. So Paul gives us two ways to feed our hope. First of all, by what we know. And secondly, by how we live. Because he begins, well, let's read verses 13 to 18, shall we? Oops, I only want the first one. That's right. Verse 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's read the second half as well, although I'll be quite quick in this second half if we make it at all. Anyway, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and hope as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So Paul says, there's hope in what you know. Because he begins by saying, we don't want you to be uninformed. We want you to know something. There's something really important that we need to know. 
The Thessalonians, you see, weren't that sure about those who sleep, those who had died. And it says here that if we know certain things to be true, that while we still grieve, and yes, how we do grieve, while we still grieve, we do so with hope. So what is it that it tells, Paul tells us, what do these verses tell us we need to know? Here's the first thing, it's in verse 15. We need to know that the Lord himself will come. A few weeks ago we heard about this word in the Greek for the word that is used for coming. The Greek word parousia doesn't matter too much about how you say it or how you spell it. But it, what it, it's written down in 1 Thessalonians for the first time, although it was a phrase that Jesus himself also uses in the Gospels. But the Gospels hadn't been recorded and written down uh, before 1 Thessalonians was written. So here, this word, the coming, the appearing, the arrival, the parousia of the king, it's an important word. Do you remember what we learned about it last time? It was used uh, when a king or a governor or a high-status person came to a city in the Greek or Roman world they'd be arriving on their way to do the business of ruling or whatever they were doing as they came outside this kind of city and they were seen and they were coming then this word parousia was used it was their coming, their appearing and the Lord uh, Paul tells the Thessalonians that the Lord is coming the king is going to arrive one day and when he does, says the, this passage, those who have died with him will be with him alive and those who are alive will join them. That's the straightforward message. The king is coming back. So how can you believe that then? Well, look at verses 14 and 15. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. See, the Thessalonians had embraced the truth. They believed it and staked their lives on it, that Jesus had died and was been raised from the dead. Their forgiveness, the experience of the Holy Spirit they had with them, their life in God was based on that truth that Jesus had died and had been raised from the dead. That was the center of it. And they believed it and they found it to be true in their experience as the Holy Spirit confirmed it in different ways. And that belief, that understanding, that truth, that experience of that truth alive in there, in them is like a bridge, if you like, to the future. That's what Paul is saying here. It's like this, this kind of bridge into the future. He says, because Jesus died and rose again, well, he's, he's alive and he's coming back and we are going to rise again with him. And this, this idea, if you look at the verses, that people are, we are with him, with him, in him, with him. This phrase is going through these few verses. So he says of those who have previously died, They are with him. They were connected to him when they lived. They're asleep, it says, in him. The connection is still there. They may be dead, but they're still in him. And they're with him. And they're going to continue with him into the future. And those who are alive when that happens, those who are in Christ, with Christ, will join them. So there will be one living people of God united with Christ. That's what he's saying. And you can believe it because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now there's something really important here. 
it, it applies to a lot of things in life, I think. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead changes everything. We got that. If Jesus rose from the dead, and there's good evidence to say that he did, apart from everybody's experience, but you can go back to the evidence. There's loads of great books on that. We did us did all the evidence on Easter Sunday. If you want to scroll back and if you remember, we had a big cardboard tomb, and Lou took us through some of that with the boys and girls. It's not complicated stuff, but there's good evidence as well as the change and all those things in the lives of believers. But the thing is, if Jesus really rose from the dead, it changes everything. Because what we call the laws of science, physics, biology, time, I suppose that's really physics, is it? Yeah, looking for a physicist. I think he's out the back with grit. Um, one of them, anyway. Uh, it, it's, it's, it may be not, they may be not as fixed <laughs> As we think they are. If Jesus was raised from the dead, the universe could perhaps turn out far more complicated than we might think. So it's not illogical, it's not stupid, it's not irrational to think that Jesus is going to return again. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, it's perfectly consistent. And if he rose from the dead, everything has changed. And that's what Paul is saying here. So there is hope to know that Jesus is returning just as sure as he died and rose again. So as sure as that, he is coming back again. And that's what Paul's saying to the Thessalonians. That's what you need to know. And because you can know that, you needn't worry about those people who've died. You needn't worry about the, that you might have missed the, the, you know, the whole program of God's new day beginning. Don't worry about that because Jesus is coming back again and he goes on to explain it by talking about four great events that are around that time Uh, and I'm going to call them the four R's okay you've heard of the three R's reading writing arithmetic well there's four of these be quick though we've got a lot to do here comes the first one the return that's in verse 16 The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and so on. Jesus himself is going to step right back into our time-space dimension. If you want to put it in those terms. He will be back again. Just as he was before the ascension. You know, before he went to heaven... He was perceived to be going up, but I try and forget the spatial things. Up, down, heaven isn't up, uh, hell isn't down. We're talking about different kind of dimensions. It was perceived to be up. Uh, you know, how you work that out, I'm not quite sure. But anyway, he will be back again just he, as he was before the ascension. What we do know is that he will be here. We do know that there will be a command, an angel shout, a trumpet. All this points to a massive kind of declaration, a declaring, it's over, he's back. It's dramatic, it's visible, it's Jesus. It will be unmissable. He is returning as sure as he rose from the dead. That's the first thing, a return. It's going to be something, isn't it? It's going to be something else. 
Secondly, he says there's going to be a resurrection. This overlaps, really, with the arrival of Jesus. You see, this idea that the command of God, the trumpet of God, the angels shout. I mean, whether these are four things or they're merged together or it's a way of kind of describing an event that is clearly going to be a physical event, but it's giving us kind of the meaning of it, we simply don't know, as I shall say in a moment or two. Don't get hung up on those kind of details. The fact is, he is coming and there will be a resurrection you see, Jesus commands the dead. Jesus in John 5, he said, he says, don't be surprised, he said, when I tell you that the dead are going to hear my voice. He said that to the disciples and the Pharisees around him. So he said that on earth. So here we have something saying there's going to be a shout and a command and the dead are going to rise. Well, it kind of looks like it, doesn't it? What happened when uh, Jesus was in uh, Cana of Galilee? Uh, he got there a bit, not Cana of Galilee, sorry, Beth, Bethany, wasn't it? Bethany where Martha and uh, Mary and Lazarus lived. What happened when he uh, shouted, Lazarus, come out! Lazarus was alive, trying to get out of his grave clothes. It's this, this is it. The voice, the trumpet, the resurrection. God's voice spoke creation into being, he spoke new creation to being, and now he speaks resurrection. As I say, there is probably some symbolic language in here, but the point is it is a way that symbolic language, like the trumpet and the proclamation and the angel's voice, all of those could be absolutely how it happens. But the significance of them is that this is it. This is God breaking back in. This is a real event. This is how the believers who have died with Jesus, as the event occurs, they are raised physically. And people who are alive will be with them. Which brings us on to the third R. It's called the rapture. Verse 17. You might have heard that phrase if you follow some um, some American kind of... Uh, um, Second coming talks, there's a lot of talk about the rapture. Uh, well, this is where it comes from, verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That phrase, caught up, actually the Latin word for the Greek word, it's Greek in here, the Latin word for that is rapere. So that's where the word rapture comes from. What it means, it's a bit like being snatched. It's it's a bit like, um, I've made this up, so it may not be, I haven't made it up, but I've kind of extrapolated from scholars. Almost like, you know, when you talk about an extraction, not a tooth, but, you know, when, when the special forces go in to extract people, it's that kind of sudden get them out type of thing. It's the same word as, do you remember when, when the apostle Paul in Acts was about to be lynched? In Jerusalem, there was a mob forming, and the Roman soldiers said, we're going to get him out. You know, they, they snatched him out before the people could lynch him, basically. It's that same word of being kind of rapture. That's where the word comes from. So alive believers and previously dead believers are with the Lord at that point. In a moment, it says, in other places in the Bible. Now, we can put in other things about this. The Bible tells us that our bodies will, will be changed in 1 Corinthians 15. 
that they'll be transformed in Philippians 3. 1 John 3 says we will be like him when we see him as he is. But you know, they, these are the kind of details that we don't really know all of them. This is one of the issues about teaching the second coming or thinking about it. And sadly, lots of us in Britain have thought, oh, I'm not going to bother with this because you know, some people think you know, all kinds of speculation goes on. But stick with the big facts. And these like three or four things. You know when you do a jigsaw puzzle and you, you can see, I don't know, maybe you're doing something and there's a, a bit of a battleship over there and that's going to be grey and you've got the, and then if it, you know, then there's a bit of sea, you know, it's sitting on the sea and so you can tell the jigsaw puzzles are kind of going for the sea and then there might be a plane kind of, I'm just uh, making this up as I go, but there might be a plane kind of landing on the battleship and so you can tell the bits that go with the plane and you know, as you can do your puzzle, you kind of put the little bits together well, I think in some ways it's like that. We've got, we've got the bits of the puzzle and yeah, we, and we can put them together in that sense around each thing. But be careful because lots of Christians, you know, will try and then say, oh, we've got the bits and well, we don't matter whether all the puzzles fit. We'll kind of squash them together somehow and we'll write a book or make a film or et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, it all becomes a bit speculative. But there are these big things. And the fourth one, sorry, well, I'm, I'm straight away. So, and even here, it's not completely clear how we're to understand the details. So, so as I said, with these spatial elements, you know, the things about, you know, where exactly it is. We certainly know that it's not going to be local because Jesus himself said in Luke 17, it's not going to be like someone will say, Jesus has come over there. Uh, or over here, or over there. So somehow it's not going to be an event that kind of takes place in one part of the world, but not another part of the world. He's saying, no, it's going to be like lightning that goes all the way across the whole of the heavens. That's in Luke 17, by the way. You can look that up. So clearly it's, it's a kind of, you know, it's, we're talking about something big here. Um, and there's references to the clouds. So what does that mean? We're all going to be uh, kind of meeting and sitting on a cloud around Jesus or or we'll be uh, kind of snatched up and there'll be planes flying by with the clouds I don't know possibly but we do know for example that clouds are very important in the Bible Um, you remember the cloud that appeared when Jesus was transfigured and, the, and God spoke out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. What, what, what went with the Israelites during the daytime through the desert for 40 years? A cloud, a pillar of cloud. Um, you know, there are kind of, when Jesus was ascended, yeah, he, he goes into a cloud. Now, there may have actually been a cloud cloud, we don't know. But he clearly left them. But the, the point is that this is about the presence of God. It's a, it's a kind of picture as well as an event. It's kind of helping us to understand it. And the same, he said, we'll meet the Lord in the air. Well, again, some people would say, well, yeah, we might meet him kind of somewhere hovering above somewhere. I don't know. We just don't know that. But we do know also that when the Bible talks and the, and the other writers of the time talked about the air, they talked that the air was the print, the kind of part of reality uh, where actually the demons are kind of holding. So remember it says in Ephesians 2 that the devil is the prince of the power of the air. 
Um, Sim taught on that a few months ago. So again, just to give you the sense that there are these great events uh, and they're described and explained to us, but they're going to be events. Jesus is coming. We're going to be with him. What is clear is that there is this parousia. There is this arrival like the king coming to the Roman or the Greek city at the time. You know what else? Something else happened. When the great dignitary or the coming governor or whoever it was was coming to the city to do their business, whether leading it or ruling it or, dare I say, a state visit. No, I shouldn't mention a state visit. When, when something like that happened, they would appear. Yeah, there would be a parousia, parousia. They would be outside the city. But something else used to happen. The leading citizens of the city who were going to be part of what he was coming, or she was, usually it was a man leader in those days, I guess, what they were going to do when they arrived, those people who would be involved in it with them used to go out of the city and meet them and come in with them. And you know the word they use for that? It's another Greek word called apentesis. And that's the word that's used here. When it says we will meet the Lord, it says that's the word. Get the picture. The king's coming, those who are sharing his reign, whether they've died believing in him or whether they're alive at the time, are with him. They go out to meet him. They get kind of first there. Could be you, could be you. Will be you and me. If you know Jesus. And if you don't, well, why would you go and meet him? As C.S. Lewis said, if you don't want Jesus in your life now, what on earth would make you think that you would want him then? It'll be over then for those who don't know Jesus. Finally, on this one, the reunion. Verse 17. I've only got one line in my notes, or one and a half. We will be with the Lord forever. That's the reunion. Kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? Want to be there? Going to be there? Yes. Yes, thank you. Who said that? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jane. I know some other people have said, I wish I could shout out in church. Going to be there? Yes, right, okay. <laughs> Thank you, right. So there's a lot we don't know, but we do know this, and it gives us hope. There's encouragement in these words, Paul says. Encourage one another with these words. We remind one another. We anchor down on the promise. It assure, it's as sure as Jesus' death and resurrection We remind each other of this every time we eat bread and drink grape juice for us, wine, it's a symbol of the wine. When do we do it? Till? Till he comes. Let's be encouraged. Now I'm going to go real fast in part two. Because 
There is also hope in how we live, verses, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Do you remember we heard a couple of weeks ago, as Lou shared with us, that Timothy, Paul's associate and a fellow kind of team member uh, in planting the church at uh, Thessalonica, had been to see them and come back to see Paul and the others, and they were in Corinth by then. And they come back with news. And it seems that part of the news was that the uh, Thessalonians had asked Timothy and the others some questions, and he shared those questions with Paul. And that's probably why he's talked about the things he's talked about uh, from chapter 4, verse 1 onwards. And, you know, some of their worries, as I say, were about those who have died. But there was also some other worries about when Jesus would come back. And more specifically, well, they were worried. How are they going to be ready? Are they going to be surprised by it? You see, they'd heard before that Jesus was returning. Paul says that I told you this before, that it would be like a thief coming in the night. It was a picture Jesus himself uses in the Gospels. He'd also told them that, that it would also be like a woman having a child. It was certainly going to happen. Once pregnancy starts, then childbirth is coming down the line, isn't it? normally and it was like that and they also knew that there would be judgment then uh, because Jesus would rescue them it says in chapter 1 they believed that Jesus would rescue them from the coming judgment the coming wrath but are they going to be alright I think that was worrying them how will they be ready will they be caught by surprise Let me share another one of my slightly weird, dysfunctional, early Christian experiences when I was a teenager. I actually went on longer till I was a student. Um, And God kind of did something in my life that changed it. But uh, for quite a time, I'd grown up with this idea that Jesus was coming. And actually, I'd been brought up with the idea that this, this, this rapture would be somehow secret, that no one would notice it. How, frankly, anyone can read 1 Thessalonians 4 and think it's, you, know, you could miss it. I, it seems to me the whole point of it is it's unmissable. But anyway, I'd been brought up, I'd seen films about people who suddenly were taken away uh, when Jesus came and they disappeared. And, and I used to, if I came home from school or something and like, my mum wasn't there and I thought she would be, I'd think, oh no, Jesus has come and I've been left behind. It's not an uncommon experience for uh, people born and lived, grown up in that kind of era. And I would have this kind of nagging doubt. Would I ever be, you know... And maybe that was the same for the Thessalonians. How can we live in hope? And Paul unpacks the picture of the thief in the night. What is the problem with a thief arriving in the night time? Well... Well, it's in the night, so you can't see. That's why thieves like burglars usually like to come in the night, because no one's going to notice them. Um, and then there's another problem that people are asleep. So, you know, they tiptoe in, you know, like burglar bill while people are sleeping and, and take things. Or maybe if they're not asleep, they're out. They're out drinking, maybe out at a party or something. And so they don't realize till they come. Maybe they're on a holiday and they come back from holiday and discover they've been burgled while they've been away. Something like that has happened to some of us. But look what Paul says about the Thessalonians here. See, they're believers. Paul says, look, you're, you're awake. 
You're alive. You're, you come into the light. You're awake. You're alive spiritually. So you are ready. In Ephesians, I think it is, he says to Christians, you are light in the Lord. You don't belong to the darkness. When we come to know Jesus, his light shines in our hearts. We come alive in him. We're not asleep. So we won't be surprised. Don't worry. Paul is saying the people are going to be surprised. They're going to be people who are asleep, uh, you know, who are dead, who haven't got the light in their lives. They're in the dark. They don't know Jesus. So it's going to be a massive surprise. But for you, he says to the Thessalonians, don't worry about it. It won't be like that. There's nothing to fear. Of course, he tells them you need to live as if you're those people. Live what you are. You're children of the light. You're awake to God. You're living for him. So don't hang around in your pajamas, metaphorically. Make sure you're up and about and you're kind of living the life he wants you to do. But he's saying in terms of what you are, you are his people. You're light in the world. You've got nothing to fear. No, he says, we're, we're ready for the new day to begin. The new day that dawned in Jesus coming into the world. It's coming, it came into our lives when we trusted him. And now we're looking forward to it being completed when he comes again. Remember, I've used it at baptisms, or we sometimes share that verse in Philippians 1. How the Lord who began the work will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Christ. So he says, if you're a believer, if you know the Lord, yeah, you may not be a very good one or you may be struggling in different ways, but you know Jesus, you're trusting him, you're in the light, you don't need to worry. It's going to be joy and reunion and resurrection for you. He says, don't fear, we can live in hope, not in fear. He encourages them to put their armor on, and we won't go into that, but he uses that same example elsewhere He says, put this helmet on, it's the helmet of salvation. And he goes on to talk about why we're safe. And it's in verses 9 to 11, he says, God has appointed you to salvation. It is your destiny, to use that phrase. As when we become followers of Jesus, when we turn to him, our destiny is kind kind of put into his destiny. Our future is connected with his future. And, and, and these verses are saying, if we're believers, if we're alive and in the light, then our destiny is not um, wrath, but salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's he done for us? Paul goes on to say, he's died for us so that we can live together with him, whether we're alive or dead, whether he says, whether you're asleep going back to what he said before, or whether you're awake, if you belong to Jesus, you're safe in him, and you will be alive together with him forever. And just like the hope we share in what we know, this hope, we need one another in this hope too, to build each other up, to encourage each other, to be reminded of all Jesus has done, and it takes community to do that. How are you going to share that hope with your brothers and sisters this week? How am I? Know that Jesus is coming. There's hope to encourage one another when death is looming. That's a possibility. Or when death has recently, perhaps, or maybe not so recently, come into our experience and we're aching with the grief of it. Paul is saying, know this thing. Jesus is returning. We will be with him, with one another, 
again. Right on into eternity. And live that hope we belong to the day. We're awake, we're alive in Jesus. Our salvation is sure. We don't need anything to distract us like oblivion through alcohol or anything like that. We can live sober. We can live relying on Jesus because of the hope that we have. I mention alcohol because it's in the passage, not because I'm just randomly choosing it. You can read the passage, see what it says. Jesus has died so that we can live together with him. So we look forward to his return. We don't need to fear it. Praise him, eh? It's going to be a good time. I think the band are going to lead us in an appropriate song, I think. (laughs) 